Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. In this season of giftedness, I want to acknowledge the giftedness of some of our listeners for their kind remarks and kind remembrances of all of us here at Light of the East. In particular, Richard Sonenshin, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, from San Francisco. And Richard wrote us a very nice note, and in that note he said, What I have learned about the traditions and heritage of the eastern branches of the church has been of inestimable value. Thank you very much, Richard. That means a lot to us. So, once again, thank you for writing to us and for your kind remarks. Always enjoy hearing from all of you at Light of the East. And also, we'd like to say hello to our good longtime friend, William Radovich. Always his kindness to us and kind remarks and nice letters we always appreciate. So, thank you, William, for your recent comments to us. And also, Ted from Huntsville, Texas, who's serving some time in prison. Again, we have a special place here at Light of the East for all those who are in prison. We really appreciate you listening to us and what we can do for you, just as you do things for us, especially when you write to us. We'd also like to thank Joyce Turnbull from Burlington, California. Joyce, thank you again for your kind remarks and letters. So some of you, we appreciate very much that have been writing to us and being very, very kind to us. But we appreciate all of you who listen to us here at Light of the East. This is the season of giftedness, and most importantly is St. John Paul II would remind us of so much a part of his pontificate. It's all about gift, the gift of self, and we are all gifts, and everything is really gift. So that is the word for this season, gift. But also this is a season in which we are immersed through the liturgical calendar of the church in very special conceptions and also maternities or births. And earlier on our program, you heard the viewpoint on two issues that remain controversial between the Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church. You heard the perspective from the Orthodox Church from Archbishop Archimandrite Callistus Timothy Ware. 
of the Orthodox Church. You articulated rather well the Orthodox perspective on these issues, and so what I'd like to do today is to present what an Eastern Catholic perspective would be on these issues. Many times we're asked, well, if you share the same liturgical and spiritual heritage as the Orthodox churches, you're basically identical to them, yet you're Catholic, how is it that you can walk that line? How is it that you can, in a sense, be both? Do you reject one and accept the other, or vice versa, or what? And that's an interesting question. It's not a real easy question to answer, but it also, like so much of our spirituality, does have a certain unexplained dimension to it, certain mystery to it. And mysteries are things that we just kind of live. We know something about them, and there's things that we just cannot always explain about them as well, all at the same time. But the way I would answer that question is basically this, that we accept, obviously, everything that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. We have to, because we're part of the Roman Catholic Church. We can't be part of it and then not accept its teachings, although sometimes that becomes, unfortunately, fashionable today among some Catholics. But we don't do that. We accept entirely what the Roman Catholic Church teaches on everything. And we, of course, are very faithful to and acknowledge the Pope of Rome. At the same time as Eastern Christians, in trying to be true to ourselves, true to our authentic traditions and identity, we do, as we said, share the exact same spirituality and liturgical tradition as the Orthodox churches, who have sometimes different perspectives on some of these issues. So the way we arrive at a balance as Eastern Catholics is that we acknowledge and accept everything that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. But on certain things, we live out those things in our particular way as Eastern Christians. And one of those examples would be this Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which is, of course, coming up this week. In the Eastern tradition, this feast used to be celebrated, observed on December 9th, which is one day off of December 8th. And in the Eastern tradition, this feast was called the Divine Maternity of St. Anne, or the Conception of the Mother of God in the Womb of St. Anne. There's a strong emphasis on conception there, just as in the Roman Rite, there's a strong emphasis on the Immaculate Conception. But there's a lot of focus on Anne, on the fact that she conceived the child miraculously. But this child was, of course, special. Now, as you heard, perhaps if you're listening to those programs previously, you heard our commanderite, Archbishop Callistus Ware, say that the Orthodox Church does not accept the Immaculate Conception, at least not in the way that the Roman Catholic Church expresses it. So where does that leave us as Eastern Catholics? Well, as I mentioned, we accept what the Roman Catholic Church says about this teaching, the Immaculate Conception, but we live it out through our own particular liturgy, which has its own particular emphasis. And it's interesting to note that when the Roman Catholic Church formulated its doctrine on the Immaculate Conception, it relied on the text of the Eastern churches. So a little bit of an irony there. And what's interesting is when you look at those texts, for instance, we're going to go back a little bit before the Feast of the Immaculate Conception or the Maternity of St. Anne, whichever way you want to say it. We're going to go back a little bit earlier to a recent feast, one of my favorites, the Entrance of the Mother of God into the Temple. And as we've always said on this program, to understand the soul and the spirituality of the East, you go to its prayer life, to its liturgy, especially its liturgical texts, which are basically allegorical hymns and theological exposés. So if you look at how we pray, you see what we believe. And in the morning prayer, the matin service, which is a very important service in Eastern churches, for the feast of the entrance of the Mother of God in the temple, we have this text. It says, Your wonders, O pure Theotokos, 
surpass the power of words. For in you I see something beyond speech, a body that was never subject to the taint of sin. Therefore, in thanksgiving I cry to you, O pure virgin, you are truly high above all. Now, those words, and I changed the these and thous just to help us understand it better, but those words are taken from the translation from the original Greek by Mother Mary and Archimandrite Callistus Ware himself in his wonderful book, The Festal Menaeon. So, the Archimandrite who expressed the disagreement the Orthodox churches have with the Roman Catholic Church on this feast or the Roman Catholic's presentation of this event of the Immaculate Conception, in his own book, he has a text translated where it says, a body that was never subject to the taint of sin. Is this not, in its own way, an affirmation of an immaculate conception or being conceived or certainly being without sin? In fact, if you look at the other text for this feast day and also the selection of the readings, which come from Exodus and also from the first book of Kings, where there's a lot of imagery, a lot of references to the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, one thing that is holy was put inside something else that was holy, which was then put inside something else that was holy. The Ten Commandments were put into the Ark of the Covenant, and nothing else was put in there at the time. And the Ark of the Covenant was put into the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary, which itself was put into the dwelling place or the temple. And what this is showing is that something holy, something spotless, in which nothing could be inside of it, nothing else could touch it, was put into something else very holy. Now, what does this remind you of? Think allegorically. Think Eastern. (laughs) Does it not remind you of, and in fact it is, an allegory for the mother of God and for Jesus Christ? She herself was a temple, a mystical temple, so she had to be reserved, she had to remain pure without the taint of sin, as the liturgical texts say, so that something else very holy, ultimately holy, could be put inside of her, and that is God himself. So you see, these are prefigurements in the Old Testament of what would become the situation between Jesus Christ and his blessed mother, the Theotokos, the mother of God. And so there is a strong, strong emphasis and certainly implication by the choice of the readings in the Byzantine Catholic Church for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, or the words, the maternity of St. Anne, there's a strong emphasis on that purity of the Virgin Mary, in other words, her sinlessness. And so, when the Roman Catholic Church speaks of an Immaculate Conception, is it really, and I speak again, I'm speaking from an Eastern Catholic perspective, is it really so different than what the Eastern churches are saying about that same reality. There are differences in emphasis, but how fundamentally different are those differences? That is always the question. Certainly the question in my mind, and our question here always at Light of the East, because our mission here is unity in the church between the Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church. And we have a certain vantage point that we lie in between the two. We are certainly part of the Catholic Church, and we are loyal to the Pope of Rome, and yet we try to be as authentic and faithful as possible to those very same liturgical and spiritual traditions as our Orthodox brethren from where we came. Remember, the church was one, but it had two lungs, as St. John Paul II said, for a thousand years. There was the Eastern Church and the Western Church. 
It was only after the Great Schism in 1054 that we began to have what we know today as the Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church, or the Latin Rite. But 500 years after that split began the partial reunions of the Eastern Catholic churches who came from the Orthodox Church, the partial reunions with those churches, once again with Rome and Rome with them. But as an Eastern Catholic, we stand between the two, and in that way we're able to move between the two and move about in each other's homes. And we can perhaps see the perspective of each other maybe more clearly or without as much reservation. So we understand very well what the Roman Catholic Church is saying on this doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, and we accept it, but we also see their particular emphasis. At the same time, we're faithful to our own emphasis, which is the same as the Orthodox Church, or very similar, but we live it out in our own way, liturgically, through our liturgical text. So I don't know if that's any kind of a real clear or solid solution or answer, but it is one that comes from the perspective of an Eastern Catholic. We're going to talk more about these issues when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. I'm Father Thomas Loya, and I'm inviting you to spend a holy hour for life at Divine Infant Parish, where Father Loya will be the homilist Friday evening, beginning at 7.30, December 12th, and be transformed. Also, be immersed in the sacred music of the Eastern and Western traditions sung by the Ecclesia Choir. A monstrance will be used, blessed by St. John Paul II, courtesy of the St. John Paul II Eucharistic Adoration Society. The Holy Hour for Life, Friday, December 12th, beginning at 7.30. Divine Infant Parish, 1601 Newcastle, Westchester, Illinois. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. Why does St. Nicholas deliver gifts under the cover of night? Well, that tradition began in my hometown of Patara in Asia Minor when I came to the help of a destitute man who had three grown daughters. He was so poor that he could barely feed them. Because he was so desperate, he was tempted to sell them into slavery. Then I remembered the words of Jesus who said, When you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. And so I put together three bags of gold coins and tossed them through the window at night to help them. That was the first of my midnight visits, and that's the reason to this very day, even when I'm dressed as Santa Claus, I still deliver gifts under the cover of night. May the same love, joy, and peace that the angels proclaimed on that first Christmas animate your own heart to give hope to those most in need. For Christ is born. Glorify Him. <laughs> Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. We're talking about two controversial issues. I mean, issues that remain controversial or open for discussion between the two lungs of the church, East and West, and those issues have to do with conceptions, one being the Immaculate Conception, the other one, contraception. One more item, a reference for the issue of the Immaculate Conception. 
In the liturgical text for this feast, which is on December 8th in the Eastern Catholic Churches, one of the liturgical texts says this, It is fitting that the second Eve, which of course is the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, be created and remain without sin, in the manner of the second Adam. For the rebirth of the human race now takes place. Just as the fall came through the first Adam and the first Eve, Christ has renewed all through his new birth, and it was Mary that gave birth to him. Glory and praise the Lord who willed it so, the creator of all things. Now, it's interesting that it makes note of the second Eve, meaning the first Eve was also born without sin. Remember, it's hard for us to imagine that because we're all born with the effects of original sin automatically. The whole human race has since Adam and Eve. But remember, Adam and Eve were not. Adam and Eve came into this world made pure in the image likeness of God. They chose sin, and sin entered into our reality, original sin. That's why it's called original sin. It was the first one. It was the beginnings. But they were not conceived or made in sin. So when we speak of a second Eve, that would have to mean that she too, if she's the second Eve, would also have to have been made and conceived without sin. Again, I derive this from the liturgical text. Okay, let's move on now then to the other issue having to do with conception, and that would be contraception. In my mind, as an Eastern Catholic and as someone who has been a promoter, speaker, and always a student of St. John Paul II's monumental teaching on the human person, the theology of the body, I would have to say that if there's any church that would see contraception as an intrinsic evil, would have nothing to do with it, it would be the Eastern churches. It's interesting because St. John Paul II arrives at this idea or reinforces the idea that church has always held that contraception is intrinsically evil. In other words, you can never use it. It's never good, period. That's it. He arrives at that by taking what I would refer to as a very Eastern approach. In other words, a mystical approach. Because St. John Paul II's whole theology of body is all about the body is more than just the flesh, but the body reveals something beyond itself. It reveals the person. It reveals something about God, which means that whatever goes on in the body, something is being revealed about God. And this means that the body, as St. John Paul II taught, speaks a language. Now, if we speak a language, we can speak a lie or we can speak a truth, but we do still speak one way or the other. And the body speaks a language. Let me share with you a few quotes from St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body on the issue as he's treating it of contraception. In fact, John Paul II's huge monumental work, if you want to find a pinpoint reason, a pinpoint reason why he put together this monumental teaching, it was because of one single reference in Blessed Paul VI document, Humanae Vitae. That reference refers to a, quote, total vision of the human person that that is what would be necessary for the world to understand and embrace the church's teaching against contraception and in favor of natural family planning, of doing things the natural way, and others according to God's order. So John Paul II commits this entire teaching of the human person basically to unraveling that one singular call in Humanae Vitae for that total vision of the human person. And here's one of the things he says in his treatment of this issue. The human body is not only the field of reactions of a sexual character, 
but it is at the same time the means of the expression of man as an integral whole of the person, which reveals itself through the language of the body. This language has an important interpersonal meaning, especially in the area of the reciprocal relations between man and woman. In addition, our earlier analysis shows that in this case, the language of the body should express at a determinate level the truth of the sacrament. By participating in the eternal plan of love, the mystery hidden in God, the language of the body becomes, in fact, a prophetism of the body, as it were. One can say that humani vitae carries this truth about the human body in its masculinity and femininity to its final consequences, not only its logical and moral, but also its practical and pastoral consequences. The unity of the two aspects of the problem, of the sacramental or theological and the personalistic dimension, corresponds to the overall revelation of the body. From this derives also the connection of the strictly theological vision with the ethical vision, which appeals to the natural law. Okay, what he's saying here, as I mentioned, is that the body, as you heard that phrase, speaks a language. And again, if you look at this through that mystical vision that the Eastern churches are so good at, I believe it can only come to one conclusion, that if the body is saying, if speaking the language of unity and generativity, that to introduce something into it that goes counter to that is to introduce something that would in fact be dishonest or intrinsically evil. Archimandrite Clistus Ware, on our program a few weeks ago, mentioned that the Orthodox Church allows their people to use contraception if need be. Now, that does not mean that the Orthodox Church promotes contraception. They don't think it's a good thing, but they allow for it, as they claim, pastorally if needed. They do not proclaim it as intrinsically evil, whereas in the Roman Catholic Church, it is proclaimed as intrinsically evil. And as I mentioned, as an Eastern Catholic coming from an Eastern spirituality, and looking at John Paul II's approach, which is very similar to Eastern spirituality, I think you can only come to one conclusion, that if something physical, which is very much the Eastern spirituality, something physical reveals something spiritual, then what is being revealed in the one-flesh union between husband and wife? What's being revealed there is that full, free, faithful, and fruitful gift of self to one another. And many people will say, well, the natural way, in other words, of abstaining from intercourse during times of fertility so as to space children in a family, that that is just another form of contraception. Well, not so. And the difference is articulated well, again, by St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body. He says this, The encyclical highlights especially that there is an essential difference, that is, a difference of an ethical nature between the two cases. In the former, that is, making use of the infernal period, the married couple make legitimate use of a natural disposition. In the latter, that is, the use of means which directly prevent conception, they impede the development of natural processes. St. John Paul II also says this in his Theology of the Body. The encyclical places the ethical dimension of the problem in the foreground, underlining the role of the virtue of temperance rightly understood. In the area of this dimension, there is also an adequate method of acting. In the common way of thinking, it often happens that the method, detached from the ethical dimension proper to it, is applied in a merely functional and even utilitarian way, 
when one separates the natural method from the ethical dimension, one no longer sees the difference between it and the other methods, meaning artificial means, and one ends up speaking about it as if it were just another form of contraception. Okay, again, what St. John Paul II is saying here is that it's not just the method itself, but it's the ethical dimension of that method. Yes, contraception and abstaining from engaging in intercourse during periods of fertility or can result in something similar, it's not necessarily guaranteed in either case. It results, of course, in no conception. But the difference is how you get there. In the case of the natural way, there is always an openness for God, because I mentioned a conception might happen, even though it may not be necessarily planned or desired at that time. But the couple remains open to that possibility. There's always that possibility of a conception. In other words, God is in control. We are not ultimately in control. Secondly, the couple is using the natural order. In other words, they're acting according to the order of things, which is going to always maintain a certain honesty between them in their relationship, a certain purity, a certain respect for one another, a certain being in sync with each other physically, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. So the natural method that the church teaches actually contributes towards a greater intimacy between the couple. It's not always easy. Nothing is always perfect and easy on this side of eternity. But it does work towards the good of the couple. In the other case, the contraception means just that. It is preventing or negating a pregnancy and doing so in a way that is bringing a certain dishonesty or an artificiality between the couple. And that can never contribute to the good of that couple, even though many people think it can. It opens itself up to too great a vulnerability to objectifying each other and to even using each other, even if the couple doesn't intend that. There's a great vulnerability there. So there is an ethical dimension that separates the two approaches, even though they might result in possibly the same result. In other words, no conception at that time. And that ethical dimension makes all the difference in the world. These are just some perspectives from an Eastern Catholic perspective on these two controversial issues, the Immaculate Conception and Contraception. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.